0: This is the 181st QuackCast. It's called Influenza Eye Roll. It was originally written December 11, 2015. I don't know the best metaphor, but what comes around goes around. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Sisyphus was a science-based medicine kind of guy. Whack-a-mole. So what do you do when the same old, same old rears its head yet again? There are over 2,500 posts on science-based medicine, and I suppose I could just point to one of those posts. But a podcast that just pointed to prior podcasts would just irritate people, and we don't want to irritate people. The problem with WordPress is that it is not a good format for reference material. It's difficult to find things over on science-based medicine, even when I know they exist, and searching for them using what I think are relevant terms. It being the start of the flu season, the same old, same old nonsense is back about flu, vaccines, and influenza treatment. Influenza seasons vary. The nonsense about flu does not. On the assumption that most of the listeners of this podcast have no prior knowledge of what I have said on this topic, I thought I would tackle influenza yet again. If you don't want to listen to this, skip ahead to the 182nd QuackCast. The other problem with these podcasts is a lack of context that we rely upon. You can't see my facial expressions or body language, just words, and words do not always convey some forms of subtlety. Sarcasm at least has some punctuation, although I don't know if it's ever been used. There is also a sarcastic font, which is a reverse italic. Hopefully you can hear my sneering tone, even if you can't see my curled lip. And seriously, when you have to tell someone that a comment was sarcastic or a joke, the sarcasm and humor loses most of its power. I don't need sarcasm today. I need an eye roll. I know there is now an eye roll emoji available, but it's not available for the podcast or for WordPress. And an emoji would have the same killing effect as a mark. Look at how expressive those eye roll gifs are. For this podcast, might I recommend the Liz Lemon eye roll with every quote? Because the eye roll is where my heart is as I do this podcast, induced by, quote, questioning medicine. Why is Tamiflu still around? Tamiflu doesn't help, so why are docs still prescribing it? This is over at MedPage Today, and it's by a family practice resident. Sorry, Harriet, but I am channeling my internal medicine ID specialist arrogance. And now I can see out of the back of my head. I think I just tore both my superior obliques. I work in a hospital system with internal medicine residents. And they are John Snow when it comes to infectious diseases. Which is expected, by the way. They do a residency to learn but I would be surprised if anyone would want to demonstrate the depth of their snow with a blog entry on a major medical website. Not here. And here I thought naturopaths had issues with understanding their limitations. The article is a year old, but representative of the same old crap, and the internet is eternal. I appreciate that it is fun to be edgy and contrarian, going against the usual conventional wisdom. I really do. But if you're going to be an edgy contrarian, do so after reading all the literature with more brains than God gave a goose. They start by mentioning the issues of Roche failing to report all the data from all the clinical trials and the brave crusade of Dr. Jefferson to get all the data. Yep, Roche has behaved like dirtbags when it came to releasing information on the efficacy of ulcetamavir. But... As has been discussed, the Cochrane reviewers are not angels either. Knowing the biases of the Cochrane reviewers and their awesome ability to evidently pull out of thin air explanations for the mechanism of Oseltamivir's effects, I really do not trust their meta-analyses. They fall into the category of, quote, a controversial tool, because even small violations of certain rules can lead to misreading conclusions. In fact, several decisions made when designing and performing a meta-analysis require personal judgment and expertise, which I think the Cochrane reviewers lack when it comes to influenza, thus creating personal biases or expectations that may influence the result. Bebo. Bias in, bias out. Cochrane stinks of Bebo when it comes to influenza. Yeah, I know, just like this quack cast. And then the edgy contrarians proceed to cherry pick the results of the Bebo Cochrane review that suits their narrative that alsoltamivir is a useless drug. They say, quote, when the Cochrane reviewers were finally able to look at and sort through the body of information and not just the abstract data, they came to similar conclusions and reported that there're no differences for hospital admissions, reductions in confirmed pneumonia or other complications. What do they fail to mention from the Bebo-Cochran review? What do they leave out of their edgy, contrary, and essay? Quote, ulcitamavir and Zanamivir have small, nonspecific effects on reducing the time to alleviation of influenza symptoms in adults, but not in asthmatic children. Using either drug as a prophylaxis reduces the risk of developing symptomatic influenza. Treatment trials with Olcetamivir or Zanamivir do not settle the question of whether the complications of influenza are reduced because of a lack of diagnostic definitions. So what are these small nonspecific effects? Quote, for the treatment of adults, ulcetamivir reduced the time to first alleviation of symptoms by 16.8 hours. This represents a reduction in time of first alleviation of symptoms from 7 to 6.3 days. So you are sick about one less day with ulcetamivir. It figures that privileged physicians with money and resources would poo-poo a mere day of less illness. They are not single parents working minimum wage for whom getting back to work a day sooner may be critical for making the rent payment or putting food on the table. There are large numbers of people for whom an extra day of illness could be catastrophic. Not that a family practice resident would be aware of that. I certainly would take care of those patients on a daily basis. Unfortunately, they are also the same patients who would be unable to afford ulcetamavir. And being able to prevent influenza in family members or nursing homes is not a small non-specific effect either. The majority of these clinical trials are mostly in normal people. Could Olsatamivir have other benefits than those mentioned by the very bebo Cochrane review? Again, it depends on what population you are treating and how promptly the medication is given. My favorite endpoint is death. It's a nice binary endpoint with no issues about diagnostic definitions. Death is easy to diagnose. Just look for the sobbing family at the bedside as their 25-year-old daughter goes into influenza induced multi-organ system failure. The EKG slowing to a flat line. Been there. Done that. Too many times not a fan. So what about olsatamivir and death? In Asia, prompt use of olsatamivir meant, quote, the incidence of hospitalization and mortality were lower. If pregnant, as compared to early antiviral treatment administered less than or equal to two days after symptom onset in pregnant women, later treatment was associated with admission to an intensive care unit or death. If elderly, Ulcetamavir therapy initiated after 48 hours was identified as independent variables associated with mortality. If in Thailand, quote, treatment with ulcetamavir is associated with survival in hospitalized human influenza pneumonia patients. In AIDS patients, quote, delayed administration of ulcetamavir in hospitalized patients was significantly associated with mortality. That is a fairly consistent finding. If you are an at-risk population, humans, prompt use of ulcetamivir decreases the risk of death. And at $135, it's a lot less expensive than the $10,000 average cost of a funeral. And if you are ill enough to be admitted to the hospital with influenza, early ulcetamivir leads to slower progression or decreased progression you're less likely to end up in the ICU. And at what cost? Nausea, vomiting, and headache. For those who let the bebo Cochrane Review do their critical thinking for them, they are impressed with the number needed to harm of 28 for nausea, 22 for vomiting, and 32 for headaches. As if you can't stop the medication or treat the symptoms if the potential benefit, depending on the patient population, is avoiding death. Let's see. Death. Nausea. Death. Vomiting. Death. Headache. Uh, I tend towards avoiding my death, and I hope my doctor would as well. Death sucks. I remember in 2009, the first year of H1N1, every ICU bed in our system was occupied and every ventilator was in use. If a patient came in with flu needing a ventilator, we had nothing to offer. That patient was dead. We were maxed out. We were right at our surge capacity. It still amazed me that influenza peaked right at our surge capacity. It was also a year with 12 flu deaths in my hospital system, most of them young and a few of them pregnant. More flu deaths than I had seen in my entire career before. Did putting all our flu patients on ulcetamivir prevent a few deaths? Well, probably. I can't say based on my own experience. As an ID doc, I am aware of the 1919 influenza pandemic. Influenza killed maybe 5% of the world in six months, 650,000 deaths in the United States, about equal to all the combat deaths in all of our wars put together. Influenza can be quite the killer, and should flu ever return with a repeat of 1919, I'll be glad we had a little Olsotamivir around to take the edge off the death rates. Olcetamivir may not be as effective as penicillin for syphilis, but it's better than nothing. There are 85,373 PubMed references for influenza and 3,315 for olcetamivir as I wrote this entry. It looks like the authors read maybe a dozen papers. I wonder how many I have read in my 30 years of infectious diseases. Since starting the Puscast in 2006, Judging from my search of the papers I have on my hard drive, I think I've reviewed maybe 3,200 articles related to influenza. At least that's how many PDFs I have on my hard drive tagged as influenza. The influenza literature is, like most of medicine, complex, nuanced, and difficult. And it has to be applied thoughtfully to a patient population that is equally complex, nuanced, and difficult. Understanding influenza is more than writing a prescription for a patient. Understanding influenza is more than taking at face value a Bebo-Cochran review. It is being a truly holistic doctor, factoring in circulating strains of flu, the prior exposure vaccination history, the comorbidities of the patient and their close contacts and family, and possible genetic resistance or susceptibility to influenza. Influenza is a disease of individuals and families and populations. So when I read a glib, superficial conclusion like, quote, Patients who have flu feel bad, they want a drug to help them feel any amount of relief. Sadly, we have nothing for them. We can encourage hydration and rest, but that's about it. The easy path is to write a prescription for Tamavlu and move to the next patient. The hard path is to discuss why you are not going to write the script to someone who doesn't want to hear it. It would also be more difficult to tell the family why they died of influenza when they could have prevented it. As with most things in medicine, we should do our best until we know better. They don't. And when we know better, we should do better. I certainly hope they do. It is safe to say that Tamiflu, as well as with the medical topics in previous posts, we should know better. I can't even roll my eyes. JFC, I can only shake my head in sad disbelief and pity that his future patients may come into his office with influenza. I cannot find a gift that is equal parts contempt and disgust, because this is the kind of simplistic meme that will circulate among those who don't recognize how profoundly misleading it is and how truly little they know about influenza. Of course, in my practice, I see the most patient harm occurs from those who honestly think they know what they are doing about infectious diseases, but in fact don't know the difference between a burrow and a burrow i.e. an ass from a hole in the ground. Ignorance kills. It will be my colleagues, the ICU docs and nurses and respiratory therapists, who are going to deal with the results of this kind of ignorance at the bedside as the patient fades to black from influenza. The good news, though? Now when I discuss Dunning-Kruger, I have an even better example than Jenny McCarthy. And that ends the 181st QuackCast. Thanks for listening. Bye.